We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waters where we're recording from, the Awabakal and Wanarua peoples. We acknowledge the Awabakal and Wanarua elders, both past and present. Now Andrew Johns. Sights a little hole himself, he's great for reaches, and that's a title Andrew Johns. Great streak from the little halfback, and that's a good reward for a great game. It is Abu Mack for the Newcastle Knights in first grade. Andrew Johns scores the try, and that should wrap it up for the Knights. Coming to you live from Awabakal and Wanarua lands, you are listening to the Bay 53 podcast as part, as part of the Sports Best Friends Podcasting Network, brought to you by A-plus Contracting and Poly Welding. This is a podcast created by Bretto and the K-Dog, Knights fans from the supporters Bay 53 at McDonald Jones Stadium, home of the mighty Newcastle Knights. Well, we're doing something different. We're bringing in someone else to join us in our special episode of Shenanigans. And trust us when we say that while this man will need no introduction, we're going to give him one anyway. Bretto, can you believe we managed to rope in someone to join us for a chat? An actual legitimate rugby league journalist. I know. I we know. Exist, we exist in the real world. We didn't uh, We didn't scare him off. We didn't have to pester him too much. Uh, Steve Mascord, thank you very much for joining us. Guys, I mean, a bit of show business there. I think it was me who actually came to you, wasn't it? <laughs> I think there was, look, there was definitely polite um, polite interaction online. But, uh, look, we have no shame. And uh, we were very, um, yeah, we were just very happy and excited that um, that you uh, didn't block us, which is <laughs> uh, generally uh, some of our experiences to date. Steve, I want to get this out of the way uh, straight up, and I don't mean to fanboy too much, but um, when I mentioned to a friend of ours who we chat with fairly regularly um, for you know any chance we want to talk about the Knights, he and I were actually recollecting that back in the day when um, – about 20 years ago, back in the Fairfax days, we used to really enjoy that double-barrel shotgun hit of rugby league journalism from Roy Masters, uh, followed by Steve Mascord. Well, that's that's great, mate. Um, I, um, you know, I, I, I thought you were going to say the old Lennon and McCartney, me and uh, me and Brad Walter, we had the double bylines, yeah. uh, and we'd sometimes actually literally swap seats at games and sit it in front of each other's computers and finish each other's stories. I remember <laughs> that happening a few times. I don't think Roy would be uh, the sort of person who would uh, invite me to sit, sit at his desk <laughs> and finish the story for him. Um, so, um, no, that, that's that's great, man. I mean, obviously, uh, the best thing about when you know, we're here talking about two tribes and uh, the, you know, the, the thing that made me want to do it and made it so rewarding for me is... Uh, that I lived through the period and I covered it every day. And I'm going back uh, now looking at all the old clippings uh, myself and seeing, wondering uh, how I, my vocabulary shrunk and I'm a worse writer now than I was in 1997. But uh, yeah, so um, it's part of my kind of um, history and uh, part of my career. And, and, um, and especially, you know, now I live in London, it's uh, great to be able to uh, talk about it. It's got that sort of extra value to me. It's not just talking about old times, but it's also talking about, few old places as well steve we're obviously we've obviously got you on to um to chat about the book um i've had an opportunity to listen to a little bit of media that you've done uh, about it you know promoting it um I, we will we'll obviously get to it in in great depth but one thing i do want to say from the get-go is i i was actually stunned hearing you talk about it that in a lot of ways, rugby league treats that period as they try to t- treat it as a period that they want to forget. That was astonishing to me. 
as well, Knights fans. Think, sorry. As Knights fans, that's our year 97 is our, is our dream year. To say that people hate that year is, was quite confronting, actually. Well, um, yeah, I, I think the people who kind of, uh, um, I, I guess you can, divide, I think I said very early in the book, you can divide people into three, the rugby league fans regarding 1997. They, they either are sort of train spotters and they love the fact that the Adelaide Rams were around and at one point, I think 98, the Adelaide Rams played the Melbourne Storm in Hobart and, uh, the, the, and they collect the jerseys and that's a very small group of people. Wow. Uh, and then there's uh, um, people who want to forget it um, because, you know, the, the, the competition was divided um, but the TV games were on at 9.30 at night after water rats um, and uh, the crowds were way, way down. Um, and then there's Newcastle Knights fans. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, and, and Newcastle Knights, you know, obviously it's a, it's a treasured um, year for Knights fans and uh, I was you know, fortunate enough to cover that run and I, I was in Newcastle every se- not every second week, but I, was, I reckon I was at more home games in 97 than I wasn't. Um, so, yeah, um, but if you put on Fox Sports, uh, you know, I'll give you a lottery ticket if you see a, a 1997 Super League game on there. And even though there are more teams from the 1997 Super League currently in the NRL than there are ARL, uh, the, the ARLC uh, and News Limited themselves uh, do try to play that year down and, and, and uh and there's heaps of examples of that, which I won't bore all the listeners with. But I think it is a year that the sport wants to forget. Um, pretty much like an airline's not going to advertise that crash they had. You know what I mean? Uh, or, the, or, the, or, a, or a canned food is not going to advertise when, when they got recalled to the factory because, they were, uh, because the food was off. It's, yeah. it's something that they, it's not in their interest to promote. Look, um, Steve, I, I'm pretty eager to get to jump back into 97. So before we do that, though, like we're obviously super keen for uh, uh, the, the season, the NRL season here. I'd, I'd love to get a bit your thoughts, if you have any, uh, on the upcoming NRL season. Um, I mean, do you still follow follow the NRL closely or as passionately as you maybe once did? Um, yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't watch every. I mean especially with the uh, time difference and everything. I mean, starting a day on Thursday with a live game and then going into two uh, on Saturday and then getting up at like 5 a.m. on uh, – sorry, on Friday, then getting up at 5 a.m. on Saturday, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's, that's more than half my week gone. Um, so so my, my relationship with rugby league can be complicated at times. I get disillusioned uh, from time to time with various things and I kind of um, – I, I drift away. Um, so I, no, the answer is no. I mean, I wouldn't follow it anywhere near as closely as I used to when I, um, used to go to four games a week, you know, like I would, you know, I would go, I would, I was definitely a hundred game plus live uh, a year person, uh, for more wow. than a decade, uh, for, for more than a decade. And I, I don't do that now. I love the fact that I can, uh, sit here and watch a game on TV. If it's in the evening, I can uh, have a beer and, uh, this year, I didn't even apply for a press pass over here. I, I wanted to kind of have a, a more, I wanted to have a more kind of um, uh, um, grassroots relationship with the game where if I wanted to go to a match enough, I'd pay at the gate. <laughs> um, yeah. And just have, just to completely rethink my, you know, the way I kind of interact with the sport. So, um, no, so no, I wouldn't like be, uh, I wouldn't know much about, you know, recruitment. I have an idea of who's gone where and I do, 
but but as for like who's going to win the comp this year, I haven't given it a single thought. Not a single yeah. thought. Will you still watch the grand final when it comes around? Oh, no, I watch – I reckon the way I'm feeling right now, uh, I'll watch one or two NRL games a week. Yeah, so I'm not not totally – this is this year I kind of feel quite energised. Um, you know, the World Cup's at the end of the year. Yep. Let's said about what happened last year, the better. But, um, you know, the um, you know, and, 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 you know, there's more rugby league on TV here with, you know, the Monday night games from the championship are on. And, and you know, I got a um, – I signed up for that for the whole year, um, and uh, there's, then there's uh, games on Channel Four, Terrestrial Television, Super League for the first time since that period we're talking about, since Super League started in 1996. Yeah, it's on free-to-air TV for the first time uh, this year. So, so there's plenty of reasons um, to be look forward to the season, and I'm certainly not kind of um, hiding under the bed covers and trying to. Just with the game in the UK at the moment, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. Most of the um, most of the updates or the information that I really get about um, Super League and the English game these days is is via Twitter. H- how do you think the game itself is travelling in the UK now? Uh, not well. Uh, I, I think um, you know there isn't a single Super League player who. Uh, you can walk around London for two hours and there's not a single Super League player who would guarantee be recognised. Um, so um, it's very very much a northern game and it's also getting a lot less money from the uh, broadcasters. Uh, but as I said, it's a World Cup year and the World Cup will have um, a lot of cut through into the wider community. Um, you know, I went to the um, Broncos last weekend. They're in the second tier. They're in the championship uh, and they're in a new stadium, which is a soccer club plays in it here at Wimbledon. I can walk there from here. Mm. Um, and there was quite a lot of optimism. And there's optimism at the start of every year. You think your team's going to win. You think the game's going to go go fantastic. And you know, it's, and then during the course of the year, you get let down from time to time. So, the Knights fans, um, Steve, we know that all too well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I would, you know, the game is very much a regional uh, sport here, but. Um, they may have stumbled across a few positives with the money that got taken off them by Sky, uh, which was, you know, they're, 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 in that the Sky used to um, um, warehouse the, the championship games so no one else could show them. Uh, Sky kept uh, the game off free-to-air television, the Super League off free-to-air television. So because they've been given less money this year, Sky's had to give them something back and they've got the right to do those things. So, you know, there they, are signs that could be a positive. Um, on, on sort of a topic for us Knights fans, Steve, our boy, Mitch Pearce, gone to the Dragons in, in France. How do you think he's going to go? Man of Steel, certainty? <laughs> um, I think he'll, yeah, he'd be the, well, would he be the best player in the comp? He'd be close. So, and it's funny down there at Catalans, isn't it, where they kind of, um, there's no scrutiny, which is obviously why they sign people you know, not so much Mitch, but <laughs> Mitch had his dramas, didn't he, last year as well. Um, but, yep. you know, they had his, his Rafael and blah, blah, blah. And the, and the media kind of just, uh, well, the, the media's in French, so I don't know what they do. Um, but, <laughs> but, but it seems to be a kind of like a, like South used to be, you know what I mean, where if you've been in trouble elsewhere, you can get a yeah. gig down there. Yeah. But they also seem to have a lot, you know, Bernard Guash seems to have a lot of money, so they're signing some good players. Um. The grand final last year was fantastic. Went to Old Trafford and sat on halfway and paid paid for my ticket, by the way. And um, and uh, it was a really absorbing uh, game. So 
I love to see Catalans go one better and win the comp this year. This is this is my one anecdotal story. I promise for the for the show. I got the um, opportunity to go to the Super League Grand Final uh, in two thousand and six. Uh, St Helens won. I know that. I can't remember who they played. Um, yeah, but the funniest thing that. The funniest thing that happened to me, or I think that, that happened during that game, was uh, at halftime I said to my mates, well, I'll, I'll go and get us a couple of beers. And, of course, I went th- down uh, out the back to, to grab some drinks, and they said, sorry, we've we've run out. And the problem was is because those stadiums aren't built for selling beer and during football games during games, they're not actually built big enough to stock enough. So, yeah, they ran out by halftime. And I ran off screaming, going, this would never happen in Australia. <laughs> Well, there's still grounds like a, there's still the football grounds um, here rules where you, you know you can't actually drink in your seat and and uh, I know it, I know when they had Magic Weekend the, the, the you know they had them in, in in soccer stadiums and they could never get the beer right because they because the rugby league fans always uh, drink them uh, drink them dry so um, yeah and but like. Like I went to see Wigan Athletic once and there was a line and, and we were in a corporate box and there was a line on the wall um, and you weren't allowed to um, step in front of the line holding a beer so you couldn't even like make people outside jealous that you had a beer. You know what I mean? It was like <laughs> seen, as, seen, as provo- seen as provoking them. So, you, you know, so it's quite, it's very, it's a very, very different culture and the football crowds are considered to be, you know, powder kegs that could go off at any time. Um, and, uh yeah, it's very different to what we we grew up with, you know, in in Australia. I think St Helens, twenty six hole four. I looked it up for you. There you go. Yeah, it wasn't a close game. <laughs> yeah, um, and because I, I think I think that was like the last one. They lost a few consecutively after that, or maybe even prior. But uh, my mate was a St Helens fan. He was absolutely ecstatic that night. There's only um, four teams have won Super League since it started in nineteen ninety six, which is you know not good, is it? Well, and one of them's not in, one of them's not in the Super League anymore. Yeah, Brad, well, Bradford, Bradford are in the Championship. Yeah, yeah. So, and witness, witness of, witness as your former world champions beating the Raiders, back in uh, the eighties and eighties, um, nineties, beginning of the nineties, and they're also they're in they're also in the Championship. Um, so um, there's a lot there's a lot of clubs, you know, from sort of the the M sixty two corridor. Who've fallen on hard times and 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 in lower divisions and really got very little hope of getting back up again. You are listening to the Bay Fifty Three podcast. We could talk. I actually genuinely could listen to you talk Super League uh, for the for the rest of the morning, but that's not what we've brought you on for. Um, for the, for the listeners joining us, um, Steve has written a book chronicling. What he believes is, uh, you know, at least, at least um, the biggest turning point in the game since its creation in 1895. Steve, you've written a book, Two Tribes, chronicles uh, a, a limited period of the known Super League war in Australia, mate. What what brought you to um, to bringing this out? What made you want to write the book? Well, it's funny. Um... I heard um, a guy on uh, my, my friend who's a Raiders fan, um, my friend uh, Dennis and Colin Gray, they did this thing called the Australian Rock Show. And uh, there's a, a book about Bon Scott and he asked the author, what did you write about Bon Scott? And the bloke goes, well, 
it's my job to write books. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and like, it wasn't quite that way. Cause I, I, you know, books are like, it's a big undertaking and you don't, you know, you don't do it lightly. And, um, but, but basically I was at the very first Toronto Wolfpack game, uh, in, uh, I guess it was around Christmas 2015. It was a trial match, and uh, Nigel Wood, who was the CEO of the RFL and the IRL for a while there, um, he came up and said, "You should do uh, you should do a, a sequel to Mike Coleman's Super League: The Inside Story, which came out in, in 1996." And because I'd moved over here and I didn't really have a lot of work and stuff, um, what I would have said no to 20 previous times, and he had suggested it to me at least once before. I said yes to because I was like, well, what else are going on, you know? Uh, but um, he wanted me to do something that was like picked up where Coleman's book finished, which is when Super League was outlawed at the beginning of 1996, and take it up to now. And I was like, well, that would just be a list of events, you know what I mean? It wouldn't have any humanity in it or, you know, it would just be like, and this happened and this happened and this happened. So I narrowed it down to basically from October 3, 1996, to um, uh, December, um, uh, December 19, 1997, which is when the ARL clubs agreed to join Super League, uh, join, not join Super League, but form a joint venture with Super League. Um, and, and from then it was really easy because I just rang up 100 people. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and there were people, mostly people I already knew, some of them already my Facebook friends. Um, and, and, then I was off. I was off. And um, I did a thing on Substack, which is like a writing platform like Patreon, uh, which I sort of took some readers on the journey with me. Um, and, um, and, then, and that's it. There, here we are. It's, it's, it's out and it's, uh, you know, it's going really well. It's um, been sort of in high on a lot of different Amazon charts and stuff like that. And I'm hoping to be back in Oz at the end of the year to go around and actually be there on uh, the 25th anniversary of the NRL being born. Um, and and um, in the book, there's actually the Chinese restaurant where Ian Frickberg and Neil Whitaker went on December 18 and toasted the formation of the NRL with a glass of port. Uh, I won't tell you where it is, but um, I'm, I'm going to make a reservation. And um, hopefully as people read the book, the, uh, the reservation will get bigger and bigger and bigger and there'll be more people sitting at the table. Um, yeah, so... So yeah, it's been, it's been it's, as I said, I started off as something was like, well, why not? And and it became a quite a personal kind of journey, you know. So the book focuses on the '97 season, Steve. You said previously that people avoid talking about that subject because of the pain and the anger it brings up. How do you look back at '97? Uh, I love it um, because there was more footy. Um, there was more of everything. There were two New South Wales teams. There were two Australian teams. There were two grand finals. There were, <laughs> no, there were, there, were, there were five New South Wales versus Queensland matches. Uh, two teams in Newcastle. Uh, I went to Topper Stadium a lot too. Um, me too, so, me too. Down the road yeah. from my house. <laughs> oh, there you go. So so I loved it. And, and I realised, I, realized, uh, I didn't realise until I did an interview um, about the book. And I didn't write it in the book anywhere. And I didn't write it on Substack once. But 1997 is my favourite season. Um, you know, I, I loved it because it was just more of everything. And, you know, St. Helens came and played at Shark Park and Paris Saint-Germain came to Newcastle. And, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I loved all that. And, and, and um, we can go into this deeper later, but um, that probably says something about what sort of rugby league fan I am 
and maybe some a few people like me, maybe like you, if you went to the Mariners and you cherished that year, um, we're in the minority in rugby league. We're you know we're not the you know rugby league is a mass market product in Australia, and we're the kind of uh, you know we're the, we, we're the one who likes sort of uh, Bon Jovi's new album. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> you know, the, like you know, so we're we're not we're not a big part of Bon Jovi's business, really. Uh, yeah. Just, yeah. We just give them an excuse to tour every every year, really. But uh, um, so so yeah, so it, it also goes into that as also I think I think it taught the participants that year about themselves and that they had to make decisions based on their values yeah. as to which way they jumped and what they did in many situations. And then even 25 years later, it resonates, I think, with fans because it tells us about ourselves and the way we consume the game and what's important to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, not a lot of Newcastle people would admit it, but the, there was a big crossover of Knights, people that went to Mariners games. There was someone that went to a lot of the Mariners games. There was a big crossover of just rugby league heads that just wanted to see football. And the Mariners weren't the Knights, but they were still – you know, our team in, in in a sense, and it was still rugby league. And yeah, you got to see teams that we would never ever just get to see at a marathon stadium. And it was a really sort of festival atmosphere at Mariners games. People probably didn't take it quite as seriously as the Knights. So it was more about rugby league than about winning and losing. Um, yeah, there was some fan, like such, such funny things. I remember, I remember lovers in the air, John Paul Young, yeah, lovers in the air at halftime. There's probably yeah. only 2,500 people in the ground. Like yeah. When they played Paris Saint-Germain, there were actually more Australians in the Paris Saint-Germain team than the Mariners team. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if you count Paul Marquette and Keith Beauchamp, there are probably more players of French extraction in the <laughs> Mariners team <laughs> than the Paris team. So, um, uh, so yeah, no, I, but I loved going up there and, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and, and there's some great stuff, you know, stories in the book uh, about – you know, the week of the grand final, uh, the, the, the um, ARL grand final, how Malcolm Reilly and Mark Sargent had to be separated um, um, at a, in a pub by Paul Harrigan. Um, you know, um, and I spoke, to, I mean, I mean, I spoke to so many, like, there's no way I spoke to people from any other club or, you know, or as much as the Knights and, 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 and I guess the Mariners put together, you know. Paul Harrigan, Mark Glanville, Mark Sargent, um, you know, um, um, Michael Hagen, but also, like, the Knights ball boy, Michael Marr, um, the doctor, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Peter McGeek. Um, right. You know, I spoke to so uh, many uh, uh, people from Bob. I spoke to Bob Ferris, who I don't think has done a rugby league interview in a long time. It's funny. I mean, so many things, like, you know, we obviously spoke to Peter McGeek about puncturing Andrew John's lung and stuff like that. And, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, like uh, Bob Ferris, everyone at Super League, everyone in the game, uh, in Super League side of the game, called him the Riddler. And yet he never heard the nickname. They never said it in front of him. <laughs> so I interviewed him 25 years later and I said, what about that nickname, the Riddler? He goes, no one called me that. <laughs> then everyone called you that. I mean... Like Ian, Ian Schubert said, he had a different coloured suit and he'd wear a matching, he'd carry a matching briefcase whenever they saw him. So that's why they called him the Riddler. And um, <laughs> but they never called it to him to his face. So he finds out 25 years later when they interview him for this book that that's what the, that's what they were calling him. Um, so the, like that was the sort of experience it was. Like you know, um, Gary Pierce, who was a CEO of uh, not CEO, 
marketing manager at Super League. He got sacked the first weekend of Super League in 97 and because he went to the opera instead of going to the first game. And um, even he, you know, and, and so I, by speaking to John Rebo and, and Ian Schubert and, and all these people, I found out why he got sacked. Uh, and I found out, and then he told me that News Limited invited him to the opera. He was a guest of News Limited. Then a different branch of News Limited sacked him for going to the opera. You know what I mean? And just all these little things, I think if you're involved in anything creative, uh, and it is kind of creative, even though it's all true, there's a degree of creativity involved. Um, eventually, you want, the, you want to become just a, um, a vessel that you actually aren't doing anything. You're just gathering enough information that, that the story tells itself. And I think this is, this is why I kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the book and I'm trying to tell people about it because it's really the hundred and something people, um, you know, it's their story. It's not mine. And and they and they tell they tell you what happened and uh and I think it's important for everyone who kind of um, loves rugby league to know what happened you know Steve you um as you've just said you, you you spoke to a fair amount of people in doing the book what were what was the general reaction what were the type of reactions you got from people when you reached out to them about wanting to do this story about telling their story how how did people react to that um, everyone was very enthusiastic I mean it was harder to get some people than others. Um, there was one story about Brett Mullins that I had to put in there because I'd been, or I don't want to give it up, give it up but there's one story about Brett Mullins that I had to put in there because I'd been aware of it 25 years ago. I really wanted to put it in there, but I couldn't get Brett Mullins and I knew that if I wrote about it without speaking to him, it was possibly defamatory, you know. So, um, and eventually I got Brett Mullins right at the end. He was like interviewee number 99 and, um, and he was very open about it. It was such a huge relief because it had been hanging over me for 18 months, um, but you can read about that in uh, Going Out With A Bang, which is about the Australian Super League tour of, of Britain at the end of the year. I won't, I won't spoil it. Um, um, most people, mate, most people were very chatty. I mean, this is like people I knew from 25 years ago. I live in, on the other side of the world now. So every, most interviews, 85% of interviewers would, interviews were dominated by small talk. Uh, mm. where, you know, what have happened to this bloke? And what are you up to now? And how many kids you got? And stuff like that. So, um, so, so that's what it was like. It was like if you used to work with some people 25 years ago and you had an excuse to ring them up, um, then that's what it was like. It was uh, wonderful. And, you know, I was like, you know, I was, you know I'm, on the phone, I'm on the phone to Jeff Bellew or Ian Schubert and um, introducing them like we're talking now, introducing them to my wife who's in the lounge room, you know. Oh, this is my wife Sarah, blah, blah, blah. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, ha, ha. You know, so it was really good. Um, um, there was, yeah, it was, it was, like I said, it was a really good experience in that way. There was nothing really, I didn't have any, like, like I, I spoke to the, Patrick Skeen who wrote the book about, um, Olsen Filipana, um, and he had to interview Frank Stanton in the book. Frank is kind of culturally insensitive to, or, you know, it suggested he is. So he had this very awkward moment where he had to say, well, this has been said about you and. I never had anything like that. The only thing I had like that was, as I said, with Brett Mullins, and I don't want to give up ghost about um, give up the ghost means give up. So I don't want to give up the story mm. um, um, about what it is. But you'll see when you read the book. But um, but yeah, so there was no. I mean, there, there were people who I, you know, I, I I tried to get. See, like people say, did anyone refuse to speak to you? No one. 
no one said at one point John Rebo said, Oh, um, no, I don't think I can do it. You know, he's like, and he'd already spoken to me for more than an hour um, in three separate conversations. And the reason he said that was because I'd sent him his quotes and he thought they were just going to appear as a block of stuff that made no sense, you know, and that, that was, that's not the case. The quotes were appearing in the chapter about him. So he was fine when I explained that to him. And, um, uh, but no one refused to be interviewed. Like the people like Matt Adamson, who I was on Facebook friends with, and I just, you know, he just, I rang him up and he's like, okay, we could do this later. I'm busy. And then I never got back to him. And there's, I, I you know, I texted Nick Politis a couple of times and never heard back from him. Um, I texted uh, Phil Gould once. I didn't hear back from him. Um, I sent emails that I thought may have reached James Packer and Lachlan Murdoch, and I didn't hear back from him. <laughs> but, 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 but no one actually said point blank, no, I won't do it. Or I'm doing my own book. You know what I mean? No one, I didn't have, that didn't happen. Did you get any sort of situations where you were interviewing someone and you had a had a story and they're just staying walled and said, mate, we are not putting that in the book? No, no, um, no, not at all. Um, I kept it, basically, it is kind of an oral history. So um, it is kind of an oral history. So it is really about what they remember and they want to talk about. Um, so, so Luke DeVico, who lives in Newcastle now, he got a camera before they came over here at the World Club Challenge. Um, and, you know, they filmed them going to the cricket in drag and, and, and partying with the cricketers and the reporter Jim Wilson spilling wine all over himself when he was tackled from behind by, I think, maybe Simon Wolford. And, and <laughs> I didn't say to him, oh, Jesus, uh, you know, you would have met a few Sheilas while you're over here, you know. You know, like I didn't, like I, I wouldn't, you know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. not. 25 years ago, if a guy wants to say there were plenty of girls hanging around the hotel, it's the best time I ever had in my life, I would put it in. Yeah. But I'm not going to ask them questions about stuff it's like not a gossip that. Comment. You know what I mean? Like, you know, um, so there's there's no, there's actually none, none of, there's none of those sort of stories, yeah. you know, in there uh, because, you know, it's just not that, yeah. it's, you know, yeah. it's not, not about that. So, so there's no, so I would never, uh, you know, I, and I wouldn't, even, you know, there were no stories where, like, for instance, there was some, actually, right? There was, like, when the players came, there was some, there was some, I noticed reading the uh, chapter about the World Club Challenge, actually. Yeah, Laurie Daly does a lot of media. So when I asked him about, I heard one of the boys was surfing on the back of a black cab on the first night here. Um, uh, he goes, oh, I don't remember that. And then no, subsequently another guy confirms it. And another time was, um, um, oh, there was, uh, the, the, they, there was some allegation we bashed a cabbie and they, um, and they, they, the, the cops got hold of and I put in brackets a player because I'm like, well, I didn't interview the guy. It's defamatory. So you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I know from working in newspapers that, um, yeah, I've got a sense of what you can put in and what you can't without speaking to the person. Um, so, but yeah, to answer your question, so Laurie Daly goes, he didn't remember a certain thing. And then another player who was a little less sort of worried about how it might come out was happy to confirm that it, it did happen. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so there was there was kind of things like that. Um, I have found, just in case you might ask me about this later or you may not, but I have found a little bit of kind of uh, I put 
um, an extract about the stuff I was talking about from the World Club Challenge. I put it up on the Greenhouse, which is a Raiders sort of a website. And, and some of the younger fans were like, you shouldn't be endorsing or glorifying this behavior. And, uh, you know, um, uh, um, and, and, and this just goes to show these old players are hypocrites when they have a go at young players and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't really know until two months ago there was there's a thing called presentism. And presentism is applying the values of the present to yep. past events. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so um, – and, and I found it really interesting um, um, because um, I by – by telling the story, I, people want me to put tusk, tusk next to every story and go yeah. – although this should never have happened and would never happen today, but sign next every single story. No, I'm not going to do it. You make up your own mind. You know what I mean? Like mm. you read it, you go, they shouldn't have done that. Fair, fair enough. That's not me, my, you know, it's not my place to, to say that. I, I don't need to, you know, I'm not going to sort of uh, um, uh, give training wheels to yeah. the reader. Yeah. You know what I mean? You read it yeah. and you go, well, that's, you know, because sometimes back then, right, some of the behaviour was, um even when I was covering it and even when everyone was sort of pretty wild, you know, you would see, you would see occasionally see players treat members of the public poorly. And, and I thought it was um, terrible. And, but those, you know, that, no one talks about that. In the, and I wouldn't either. Like I know you, or me, we've all done things in the past, you know, that we wish we hadn't done. And if someone rang me up to write a book about that period, I wouldn't be bringing it up. And, and no one did bring up that sort of any sort of abusive behavior. But they brought up stories about guys sort of behaving you know, not so good, you know, getting pretty wild drinking and stuff. Um, and if you don't approve of it, that's great. Well, unless you're, you know, that's great. You don't have to approve of it. I'm not making a judgment. I'm just telling you what, what, what happened and what they say happened, you know. I'm no expert. I just love the game. But more than that, I love the community. If you're a fan of Rugby League or the NRL, you'll love Big T's Tees. Unique, affordable and made for fans. Find a link to the online store in the show notes below. You'd look good in one of Big T's Tees. In the midst of all of this uh, going on, you, you, you sort of, you've got this little, essentially rural area just north of Sydney. Uh, as you pointed out, for one year and for one year only, they had uh, two rugby league teams playing professionally. But for people from that rural area, we've sort of held on to what, until I heard about your book, I probably thought was more a myth than a reality, was that our little rural area was something of a central battlefield for the Super League War. Um, let's... Newcastle. Let, let's talk about the impact on Newcastle in respect to, and the impact that Newcastle had on rugby league in 1997. Well, the ARL and the ARL clubs had no money and Super League was cashed up. So uh, Manly, on, Manly were linked to going over to Super League. Um, the Roosters were linked to going over to Super League. Uh, and um, we knew that there would be one competition in 1998. So... You know, I think if Newcastle hadn't won the competition in 1997, we would have had far more of a Super League-style comp than than we ended up with. Um, there's no doubt about that. Neil Whitaker calls it the um, the game that saved rugby league, and 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 also in the book, um, 
in the very next chapter, uh, Wayne Bennett says that's bullshit, but also says that they lost the war at the start by not getting Newcastle. Um, so Newcastle is considered decisive uh, at the end of the war by a lot of people, and the one person who says that's bullshit says they were decisive at the start of the war. So um, uh, it's certainly, you know, it, it's basically, you know, only no one really cared, you know. I mean, I worked at the Herald. No one cared about rugby league. Uh, you know, I think people at the Herald were, at Sydney Morning Herald, that is, not Newcastle, um, were kind of waiting for Rugby Union to take over and were sort of easing Rugby League out, um, you know, to an extent. Um, oh, really? And, yeah, well, yeah, I, I think, you know, Rugby, yeah, that we, yeah. I mean, 1997, I, there were many first-grade games that weren't covered by, uh, you know, I, I would go to games Optus Vision and, and uh, try to get a few pars in the Sun Herald and, they weren't interested, and if, if they were interested, I wasn't going to get paid for it, you know. Um, so, the, the you know the interest the interest in the game you probably don't know, but in Newcastle, the interest in the game outside of Newcastle was, you know, had 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 really nosedived. Uh, the Broncos, you know, the Broncos got a good crowd for the grand final, of course, but um, some of their home games at uh, ANZ, uh, Mount Gravatt were, you know, very poorly attended. Um, so it was really the fact that Newcastle, who neither side really cared that much about um, in the start, it was, it, was, it was Newcastle that kind of carried a torch for the game all the way through the year, and it was a real, truly sort of transcendent event um, uh, with the grand final, which I go into in quite a bit of detail um, in the chapter about that. So... Um, yeah, so Newcastle, it's it's fun to kind of figure out what we the comp we may have ended up with, uh, but you know, as I said, when they went to the um, um, when they went to the negotiating table, uh, Ian Frickberg and Neil Whitaker, um, the biggest card that Neil Whitaker carried was um, what was the Knights and the and the support of those, those sort of pure um, um, blue collar fans uh, who were the you know. The last and left in the country who still cared almost, you know. So I was just about to ask you. Newcastle obviously doesn't have a lot of financial pull, and there's not a lot of people up here compared to the big markets. So Newcastle brought the blue collar fan. Is that is that the key to it? They were the only ones left. There were no. There was no. no people had turned, switched off the game in droves. Um, so the link between, um, you know, the, the I mean, uh, they were like um, kind of. Um, um, I'm, not, I'm not really good on biblical references, but the Newcastle um, Newcastle fans were like the Israelites with, and the parting of the Red Sea, you know. Um, they carried the game across that kind of chasm that uh, everyone could have drowned, really. And uh, yeah. and no one want, And the thing is now, no one wants to remind anyone of the flood, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. It's like it never happened. Um, but that. But really, the the you know the, the interest in the game was. As I said, you know, water rats and was on instead of uh, the games are on at nine thirty at night. The, yeah. the games were over by the time they were shown on Mondays and and, and Fridays. So um, other sports, you know, um, were, thought they had a big opportunity. So um, yeah, def- definitely was Newcastle were just vital, and and that's where the story comes a full circle, where it's about sort of, you know, it's about um, a business and it's about petty rivalries and it's about money um 
But then right at the end of the story, it's back to being about people again. And that's because of the Knights. That's uh, because they kind of uh, reminded um, everyone what, you know, what the game was about to start with. And, and um, when everything was lost, they kind of still had a bit of, you know, there was still a flame in the torch there that, that, that they'd carried throughout the whole period. Was that innocence or naivety? Um, um, probably depends. You like what you like. So mm. I, I don't, I wouldn't say it was naivety because I think the efforts of the uh, Knights were, were truly amazing that year and it was an amazing story on so many levels. You know, with, you know, Andrew Johns out most of the year injured, Paul Harrigan struggling with head knocks. You know, um, uh, a lot of the games washed out, um, you know, terrible weather. Um, and, you know, it was an amazing sports story on its own, even if there had been one competition. So it was never uh, naivety to, to admire that. I think anyone, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to admire that. But I think I think innocence, totally innocence, like um, to, to sort of be in that bubble where, um, don't forget that was a year that, you know, there was, a, um, you know, a loss of, I don't know, 7,000 jobs at the steelworks and, mm. uh, um, you know, it was, um, um, so it was, it was a tough year for the town and then there was a lot of people at each other's throats over football um, and I think it was just that sort of community spirit that we saw with the earthquake yeah. and seen over and over and over again. I think that community spirit actually sort of radiated out of the hunter and actually sort of embraced the, the whole of the game and, and kind of say it saved, saved the game a little bit, I think, because I go back to what I said earlier, even though we like, um, you know, uh, Penrith versus Bradford Bulls, not many other people did. And so if we had been left with Penrith versus Bradford Bulls in 98, I think the game, the game would have, uh, suffered enormously and it's it's kind of it's kind of newcastle that made sure we didn't steve i think i think one of the things that you're sort of refer, uh, talking about there or at least i think one of the ways that i can best explain it from my perspective is i had an opportunity to speak with the producer of our show the biggest tiger uh but magic round last year and i was saying to him people outside of newcastle i don't think appreciate and understand the relationship with rugby league that the people of newcastle have it's a it's actually beyond just going to the game and, and having a seat a team that you support the game itself is actually something that they feel that they are a part of and they feel that rugby league is a part of them yeah and uh, and that is very much how it works over here in the northern communities um to the game's detriment at times because it isn't able to properly commercialise. I think I spoke to Tony Collins the other day who does that Rugby Reloaded podcast. He's a historian and I said, if you're doing business with Rugby League, it's it's an over-unionised uh, uh, business. Um, so you won't, <laughs> you won't get your commercial uh, outcome you want because the constituents are feisty. <laughs> and they, they stop the company doing things. It's an over-unionised business that you probably shouldn't do business with. And I think um, what happened was um, with Super League is that, uh, for instance, and there's a great there's a great allegory uh, here. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, earlier the Wimbledon AFC, the Wimbledon um, Soccer Club, got moved to um, 
and believe me, I'm not a devotee of, of football, soccer at all, and I only learned this recently, but they got moved to Milton Keynes. Correct. MK Dons. MK Dons. And the fans actually created a new club um, down um, at Wimbledon, and they got funding for a stadium. Mm. That's where the London Broncos play now. And I think that's kind of what um, happened a bit with Rugby League in 1997, that um, it got kind of transferred um, somewhere else, and the people of Newcastle created their created uh, what used to be there again, you yeah. know, and they did, and and the people of Newcastle are the ones who are responsible for that win largely, you know. I think with the lining the streets and the players in tears on the bus and all that sort of stuff, the way they'd supported uh, the club that year. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a great example of people power, um, and and I think. The sport needs a bit of both. It needs people power, but also needs a bit of commercial dynamism as well to exist yeah, in the world. Um, and I, I think the NRL kind of has that now. They have they have a sort of grassroots support from you know people like yourselves are looking forward to the year and all that sort of stuff. But they also have a big ass TV contract, and you know they they not afraid to shut down social media accounts or take things down off YouTube. Um, so that, that's that's kind of the balance you, you need. That's the balance you know the sport needs as a business. If it's just purely a business, it, it won't sort of resonate with people. And if it's just purely um, a community asset, which is what unfortunately I think it is here, then it won't make any money and it'll just yeah. live hand it'll live hand to mouth, you know. Yeah. And the Super League, the Super League war was a kind of collision of those tectonic plates that allowed you know the game to to continue with a balance that it hasn't always got right in the last 25 years. But once news departed, which I think I would argue news are back now in so many ways, but um, when news departed in 2012, it kind of did find that sort of stasis, that kind of balance, the equilibrium, you know? Yeah. Um, 97 was my first year out of high school. I was out of the workforce before I ultimately ended up joining the Navy later in that year. But I remember the Newcastle attitude to life was really down you know obviously bhp was done the the whole town was just you know days of depression and whatnot and then this goliath comes along takes our game creates this team that nobody wanted um the knights struggled for crowds because of the weather and various other things and all through 97 i kept thinking this team's dead like we won't win this year mainly too good for us and this team is going to collapse and it wasn't until grand final week I sort of went, this could be the thing that saves the Knights and, you know, and hopefully can mend rugby league. And the Knights have taken 25 years to learn the lessons from Super League. It's only now that we've started got commercially smart. Mm. But that community sort of sense of it all in 97 was the one thing Super League to me didn't have. What do you think? Yeah, totally. Even the people who worked in it say that it, you know, spoke to uh, Trevor McEwen and Ian Robson and those sort of people, and um, even Michael Hagen said he, he thought he thought the, the the Mariners, even though they were a great footy team and we, the great Graham Murray, um, was, you know, a fantastic guy and a great man manager, and geez, they had some good players, didn't they? You know, that Mariners you know? team. So many of those guys were used to play in front of twenty thousand in President's Cup. So, so the Newcastle public loved all those guys. Your Robbie Rosses, your Kamal brothers all that sort of because yeah we used to see them all at 11 o'clock in the morning on a sunday morning at marathon stadium so that sort of gave them the marriage a little bit of automatic credit 
Yeah, and as I said, I think I think and and since then, you know, the, the game's been scared to try anything that might have the word vision attached to it because because basically it was it was at death's door and it, it was only people who hated all that stuff who pulled it through. So it's sort of been living in the kind of thrall of those people ever since, and it didn't it hasn't wanted to do too many things that upset those people. But again, we've seen in recent times with some of the rule changes and stuff like that. Um, that that yeah, who knows? Maybe history is kind of on the way to repeating itself in some way or not. I don't know. But the thing is, I think we learned what rugby league is and what it isn't. You know, in some ways, and the the, the kind of middle class um, already have a rugby that they like, and they don't need ours. So yeah. when we try to be too much like them and alienate the um, the core uh, constituents, uh, we we. We, we struggled enormously, you know, um, and that's a bit sad from my point of view a little bit um, because it makes it very difficult to expand into new areas and, and, to, and to be dynamic. Um, but, but I think we learned, what, what, we learned as much about what the game isn't as what it is in 1997, I think. I'm an expansionist, but is this the ceiling for rugby league? Is this our comfort zone if we try to go too big are we going to destroy the game and cause financial chaos amongst the clubs yeah i think so yeah what makes you yeah. say that steve you seem very well just uh, uh, because because there's only ever been since 1895 one successful expansion club anywhere that's the melbourne storm and they've cost 80 million dollars to keep afloat and that was news's kind of pride and hubris out of the war they had to have a. They had to have a win, you know. Um, so. Um, and what a and win it's been. Yeah, um, and they don't own it anymore either, you know. Yeah, but, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but, but every single other expansion. And when I say expansion, I don't. Brisbane aren't an expansion franchise. No, Canberra no. aren't an expansion franchise. Auckland aren't an expansion. They they expand the competition. They don't expand the sport. People were already playing the sport widely in those places, and will again. You know, Toronto is an expansion. You know, team. Um, you know, London's an expansion team. Will Toulouse uh, survive? Do you think? Well, Toulouse is a rugby league hotbed. It's in the south of France. Yeah. So I don't. I think they'll go down. I. I, don't, I think they've got the worst squad. Yeah. This year, but I don't. But see, rugby league's very. You know, if, if Toronto, you know, there's basically very little rugby league in Toronto now that the Wolfpack are gone. But if Toulouse are gone, there's still rugby league in Toulouse. Yeah. Yeah. So. So. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just don't. I, I don't think there's the unity in the sport um, to to do these grand things. I think it's possible that the, the the areas where there is potential is in North America with someone who just comes in with some money um, and, and 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 the sport doesn't have any any class over, over overtones at all. So you don't associate it as uh, working class rugby or you know or, or anything like that you just come in and it's just a commercial enterprise i think i think in new territory where people don't understand the history that's a plus um and that's where it can realize its potential and expand the way other american sports do i think nines is a great potential as well just as a party thing as a you know take it on the road um get some like they do in rugby union sevens have some specialist players Young kids and guys who have retired, um, or guys from other sports, and just run it as an event, run it as a party, and again, 
run as far as you can from those class overtones and that heritage. And then you, I think, you can, you can expand. But once you, once you tie yourself into that culture and that heritage, it's very hard to make headway. The Mariners finished sixth that season. They just, they just missed out on the top five finals. Uh, and I wouldn't miss an opportunity to lay the boot into the Cowboys. They finished last. Um, with the Super... I mean, like, this is a very... This probably sounds like a very cliched question, but I'm really curious on your... What is the Super League legacy? Um, you know, um, video referees, uh, a judicial point system, uh, you know, more interchanges uh, to, to, for, to protect players. I mean, the first video referee in world sport was Paris versus, uh, um, you know, in world sport that way, used that way. I know in American football before that they had a slightly different system. But, you know, so Super League was, uh, Super League has a lot of legacies as far as rules and off-field procedures, governance. Um, you know, it, um, I, I, and that's because, there are a lot of enthusiasts and people, all the people who go, <clears throat> all those people you know who slag off everything Peter Volandis does, right? They got their own comp. You know, they got all those people who slag off what the league does, they got their own comp to do all the things that they thought the league should do. Okay? I feel very so, sane, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, some, you can't, so you can't say that some of those ideas weren't good ideas, you know, like, you can't say that sort of, um, uh, you know, that Ian Schubert was a mug or some of these people are involved with David Gallup or Trevor McEwen or uh, John Rebo's, you know, smart people. Um, so, yeah, so I think Super League's legacy. But say legacy, Super, the, the game is trying to subvert Super League's legacy. It's trying to make sure it doesn't have one because it was also associated with kicking South out of the comp. And that's something that everyone wants to forget. They want you to forget that at every... Uh, you know, they just want you to forget that above all else. Roosters fans um, don't want you to forget it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so as a result, this is kind of like, I guess, the, an attempt to kind of put the year in perspective and to and to give it some legacy. Um, yeah. And and, but Super League didn't deliver a lot of things it promised in terms of, you know, it, it only it generated two. Genuine new teams, neither of which is, uh, you know, are still with us. It made us a lot of promises about the international game, which it never kept. Um, and the international game is far less significant than it was even then. Um, so uh, it was more some of those sort of um, innovations um, that, mm. that I guess we still have today. Um, Bredo? One final question, Steve. It's the argument that happens on social media every day, every day. Are there two legitimate premiers in 97? Will they, in 100 years' time, will they remember two premiers? Well, my, I'm trying to do my tiny drop in the ocean bit to make sure they do, because obviously News Limited owned half the NRL. The ARL ceased to exist. So, it, you know, so there was no, it was the ARLC took over, which was, which is an independent commission. So both governing bodies ceased to exist at the end of 1997. 1998 was a new start. And what's more, news was funding the whole thing. 
but but so of course of course there were two uh, two premiers, um, and yeah, of course of course there were. Uh, but sorry, uh, sorry, Steve, we we've accidentally run out we've run out of time here. We can <laughs> please yeah. continue. I'm just joking. <laughs> no, no, sorry. So you have actually you told me you've got to go, but. Uh, but yeah, so so of course there were two premiers in 1997, uh, and as Wayne Bennett points out, when Brisbane uh, played the Knights the first time in 1998, they won. So, yeah. um, and Super League, and the NRL was at least half Super League, at least half Super League. I mean, they had, you know, they had they had Super League's legal affairs. Uh, you know, they eventually had Super League's lawyer as their CEO, um, and Super League was paying paying the bills to keep the comp afloat. Um, so. But News Limited is is in the business of the media and and of narratives, and in order to make money, News was happy to uh, bury itself and to deny its own role because that's what it's in the business of making money. So it actually now you now have on YouTube Telstra Grand Final Newcastle Knights versus Manly Seagulls on the NRL YouTube channel. It definitely was not Telstra. <laughs> no, but Telstra are the current sponsors of yeah. the of the YouTube feature. Yeah, so, right. you know what I mean? But so, so we've got history being, you know, rewritten. Um, you know, there should be two asterisks or none. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, I think for me, one of the things that's sort of coming, cause I know that you did, um, you, uh, did an interview with the boys over at the rugby league digest who have done some tremendous work on this entire, on the, you know, the whole period leading up to and including it. But one of the things that actually came out of that for me, and I remember my own experience at the time, sort of, um, mid teens was, uh, I thought it was the greed of John Rebo at the time, but you look back on it now can you look back on John Rebo now? Can, can the, the normal lay person look back and go, no, he had vision for the game. He had genuine care and vision for the game because he wanted it to be better. Um, yeah, 100%. And don't, and the Broncos were a privately owned uh, club. They weren't the Queensland Rugby League. So they were a consortium and, and, and they uh, didn't have poker machines uh, like the New South Wales clubs. And so they had to try to make their money back in, in an American type way marketing their club and they've and, and they um found that philip street was uh w- was still sort of from the blazer era um and so but all equally there's some personalities involved there but i always say that the, the garden of rugby league is full of seeds of discontent but in 1995 someone came along with a giant watering can you know and so yeah. if, if yep. someone came along right now with a giant watering can. I mean, we saw Hugh Marks uh, when he was at Channel 9 do some, you know, rabble-rousing, saying the clubs don't have enough power, the NRL spends too much money. Um, and you can bet if, if, if he doubled the money, the clubs would be probably tempted to try to walk away from the NRL. But it was COVID. There was, was, the watering can wasn't big enough. So yeah. rugby league is full of discontented people all the time, always bitching. But with the introduction of with in, with the introduction of pay television, um, someone was willing to encourage them. Someone was willing, you know, and that, and that's and that's what happened. But John Rebo, you know, is you know he he is responsible for the only successful expansion club in rugby league history, uh, and it's and and I think it's unfortunate that um, no one. It, Give him credit for that. They all just remember that he was in charge of uh, in charge of Super League, and he left 
yeah, he left very early in you know in the in the year in in, in question or mid year 1997. So unlike some of the people who were involved all year, who got to kind of massage their own images and the way they're remembered, he was in Melbourne at a club that had no players um, working on that, and so his 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 image is frozen in that in that moment. You know what I mean? And that, and that's yeah. the way people remember him. Because when the two sides came together, he had no public profile at all. Steve, it's a fascinating time in rugby league. Um, and I think having listened to, like I said, having listened to some of the media that you've done um, in promoting the book, uh, it's a shame that it is a period that uh, feels like the game wants to forget. And uh, I'm really glad that you've come along and uh, decided to to remind to remind us about it. So, um, look, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Uh, if the game talking if about the, it, if the game didn't want to try to forget it, someone else would have written the book first. So, <laughs> so that's that's or you know what I mean. I would have been approached by a major publishing house to write about it. So, uh, the fact that I've kind of done it all on my own, and 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 you know that that is an indication that I'm trying to. Um, Sell an alternative narrative, or, or explain, or present an, um, an alternative narrative, and you can, you know, and it isn't. I don't think it's a pro Super League narrative or a pro ARL narrative, but it depends on what what side you're on, I guess. Um, you know, there are people out there who think Super League would have completely fixed the game and that it was struggling before, and they might think that I'm a bit too sympathetic to the ARL side, and then because telling the story has been so successful. The other point of view is more widespread, that, that the ARL was the only real comp and that, and that it was just a blip for a year, which you know is obviously not the case because news paid, news owned it afterwards. News started with no part of rugby league and they left exit of the year with at least half. So that's not the case either. Um, so it's all down to branding and marketing uh, that we all think we make that connection between the NRL and the ARL. And that's all it is, branding and marketing. But anyway, um, Guys, um, oh, there is a. Um, if you use the uh, dis- discount code Bay53 um, on the website, just go to stevemascord.com. It'll point you to the book. Um, I made it easy there. Um, and then if you use the, um, the uh, Bay53 one word uh, with obviously letters not spelt out 53, <laughs> um, uh, then you get uh, 250 off the face. Uh, value and it also works in, in, in if you I don't know if you've got any listeners over this side of the world but if you do um, it's shop.stevemascot.com same same code Steve thank you so much for your time uh, I, I absolutely know that I speak on behalf of Brett when I say it it actually has been something of an honour of us for us to have you on and um, yeah all the best with the book and uh, look hey all the best with the rest of your day thanks for joining us no worries, guys. I really appreciate you taking time out of your um, your evening to speak to me. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Sports Best Friends would like to thank you for listening right to the end. You are our kind of people. Find other great sports podcasts in our family by subscribing. And remember, social media isn't a bad place. You just need to follow the right people.